Well, if you were with us last week, we saw in our previous study that Paul, he, he ended the time talking about heaven. And we, we noted that for Paul, heaven wasn't just a destination, but heaven was a motivation. It was one of the things that motivated Paul in what he did for Jesus. And tonight we're going to see another motivation that Paul had, and that was the love of Jesus Christ. But we're going to pick it up in verse 11. It says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer to those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Let's pause there for a few minutes. Paul knew that he himself and other followers of Jesus, he knew that they were going to heaven. But he also knew that many people were not. You know, Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads to life, but broad is the road that leads to destruction. And, he, and when he said that, he says, narrow is the road that leads to life, and there's few that find that road. But broad is the road that leads to destruction, and there's many who are on that path. And Paul knew this. He realized this, that there was a judgment that was awaiting those who were rejecting Jesus. And so he says there in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. In other words, knowing that a judgment day is coming, Paul says, we persuade men. And this word persuade is a very, very strong word. It means we plead with men. We beg them, we strongly warn them, we seek to convince them, and we'll read a little later that he says this is what he's trying to beg them and plead with them and convince them and strongly warn them is that they would be reconciled to God. This word plead is a, or persuade is a word that speaks of a sense of passion, a sense of urgency, a sense of desperation. Because Paul recognized, he knew that life and death were hanging in the balance. That heaven and hell were hanging in the balance. Now, I want to ask you this question. And, I, and I'm not asking this in any way to be condemning. I'm asking this to myself as well. But let's think about this. When's the last time that you were that passionate about sharing Christ? where you were literally pleading with somebody, a friend, a family member, a co-worker, pleading with them, begging them to be reconciled to God. You know, I think it's very easy for us to kind of lose that. 
And sometimes I think in this politically correct world that we live in, we we can kind of become timid and less passionate about sharing the gospel. But I think this is good for us tonight as we're hearing the heart of the Apostle Paul that it's good for us to be, to be reminded that eternity with God or eternity in hell are hanging in the balance. And so may the Lord give us boldness. May he give us a burden. If you don't have a burden for lost people, I want to encourage you, start praying that, you, that God would give you a burden. Because there's a lot of people around us that if they were to die today, they would be lost. They would spend an eternity separated from God. And Paul was motivated by the reality of heaven and the reality of hell in in his sharing of the gospel. In fact, Paul would actually describe himself as fanatical. Being fanatical. Look again there in verse 11. He says, but, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. So he's saying, look, God knows our heart. And I, I think you guys know our hearts as well. For we do not commend ourselves again to you. But give you opportunity to boast on our behalf. That, that you may have an answer to those who boast in appearance but not in heart. He's like saying, you guys know our motives. You, you know how we were with you. But then he says this. I, I love this. I want you to catch this. He says, for if we are beside ourselves... It is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. He's like, I know sometimes we just seem like we're beside ourselves because we're just so, you know, excited about God, but we kind of tone it down for you guys a little bit, is what he's saying. But then he says this for the love of Christ compels us. He's saying, look, if we seem overly passionate, there's a reason. And in this, we come to see his second motivation. The love of Christ, he says, is what compels us. And I think there's a twofold meaning to this idea of the love of Christ. Paul being compelled by the love of Christ. I think number one, it was Paul's understanding of Christ's love for him. That's, that's first and foremost. That's, that's where it starts. Is Paul just realizing how much. That's why he prayed for the church in Ephesus. That they would come to know the width and the height and the length and the depth. The love of Christ, he said, that surpasses knowledge. Because that had so grabbed a hold of Paul's heart. In fact, I love this about Paul. Early in his ministry, he said, you know, it's a true and faithful saying that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and I'm one of them. He came to save me. And then later in his ministry, he said, it's a true and faithful saying that Christ Jesus came to save sinners and I'm the chief of sinners. What Was it that Paul got worse as he grew, you know, in the Lord? No, it was the more he grew in the Lord, the more he came to understand Christ's love for him and how just incredible it was, the more he understood how bad he was and how lost he was. I mean, Paul goes from being a persecutor of Christians and a persecutor of Jesus, somebody who was adamantly against Jesus, vehemently against Jesus. He goes from being that to a proclaimer of Jesus. And Paul would say that he he came to realize that his zeal 
was without knowledge. That his zeal, he was zealous. I mean, today, I mean, if we were really going to be serious, if Paul was alive today and doing the things that he was doing against Christians, we would label him today, he was a terrorist. I mean, that's the kind of thing that he was doing and going into cities and just causing havoc and pulling people out of their homes and having people killed for the sole reason that they were no longer following Judaism, but they were following Jesus. And it drove him crazy. But he says, I was zealous, but I was wrong. And Paul was blown away that being that adamantly against Jesus and that adamantly wrong, that Jesus had mercy on him. And Jesus pursued him. And Jesus reached out to him. And Jesus found him. And so he was so blown away that Jesus would save him that he literally would say this in the book of Romans. He would call himself a debtor. I'm, I'm, I'm in debt. I have a debt to tell people about Jesus because of what he did for me. And so realizing the love that Jesus had for him and the lengths at which Jesus went to save him, that compelled him. So first of all, the first side of that coin is, is he was moved, compelled by the love that Jesus had for him. But then the natural response to that is knowing and understanding how much Jesus loved him. Paul's response was he reciprocated that in love. He responded in love for Jesus. He loved him. So Paul was motivated by his love for Jesus as well. And I, and I think, you know, as you look at the life of Paul, you read his epistles, the guy was a worshiper. I mean, he'd, he'd, be, he'd be like front row on Magnify Night, just like, you know, yes, Jesus is so awesome. Because he, he writes with these descriptive, you know, adjectives and describing just how amazing and how wonderful and how, how much he, he viewed Jesus in that way. And so knowing how deeply Jesus loved him moved Paul to respond in kind as a worshiper of the Lord. And his love for Jesus compelled him to proclaim the gospel. And think of it in this way. When, when, when I started dating my wife, Denise, and when I came to that point, like I really was thinking like, okay, I think this is the one. I mean, I started telling all my friends. I, I was like so excited about my relationship with her. In fact, it was kind of crazy. The, after the first week that I met Denise, I was living down here, but I went up to Orange County and I was visiting my mom and dad. And I, I was, uh, I think I spent the night and I was having waffles. My mom loves, makes waffles, put cinnamon in it. My mom's sitting over here tonight. And, um, and anyway, she's asking me about, you know, the, the camp. I had, I had done a family camp. That's where I met Denise as a, one of our uh, church family camps. One of the first things I ever did here as a youth pastor way back in the day. And, um, and I, and I, I don't know what it was, you know, but I said, you know, um, well, yeah, they, I, you know, went good. And I said, there was this, you know, neat girl that from Oregon that helped me with the kids. And that's about all I said, but there must've been something that my mom saw in my face because she said, I think you're going to marry that girl. <laughs> and, you know, my mom was kind of picky about who I dated. She prayed some girls out of my life. <laughs> And here's a girl that she'd never even met before. And she says, I think you're going to marry that girl. So that stuck with me. 
And I started wondering, like, is this the one, Lord? Is my mom prophesying, you know? And sure enough. (laughs) But man, when I got to that point where it's like, man, I think she's the one, I started telling everybody. Because I was so excited about her and so excited about our, our, our relationship. And, and that's what Paul's saying, you know? Hey, are we that excited about Jesus that we want to just tell everybody about how awesome he is? I mean, you, you know how you are when you, uh, again, I'm going to stereotype right now, but when you ladies are shopping somewhere and you hear of a good sale, you know, and you, you call or text a friend, hey, you know, they're having a great sale at Macy's, you know? Guys don't do that. You know, they're not like texting, hey, Home Depot, they're having this. You know, the guys don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, we get excited about something. You see some clip. A couple of weeks ago or last week, I, I saw this amazing clip that was on Instagram of these humpback whales jumping in this pool for like they were doing it for an hour they called it they were doing ballet I immediately sent it to Pete and to Tyler I'm like check this out I mean it was so just amazing that's what we do we get excited about something it's like we want to share that with everybody well again are we that way with Jesus and our excitement about him and you know I want to just say this tonight because I know some of you are newer to our fellowship. And, and, and I just want to say, we're so glad that you're here. And a lot of you have you know, come up to me and you've told me you know, just how blessed you are that, that you've been here. But I just want to say this. I hope that you are more excited about Jesus. Or what, put it this way. More excited about what Jesus is doing here than the church. Because that's really, it's about him. It's really, it's about him. That's, that's who we need to be excited about. Paul was just excited. It was like the love of Jesus Christ compelled him, motivated him to the point that Paul doesn't even see his life as his own. Look at verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ compels me because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. I want to read you this verse again from the New Living Translation. I I love the way they put it. It says, either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. And this is going to be a theme that Paul's going to hit on here, is that how we're a new creation in Christ. He says, he died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Paul was so motivated by the love of Jesus that he didn't view his life as his own. To the elders in the church of Ephesus, we read in Acts chapter 20, Paul has a little retreat with these guys. And he, and he makes this statement there in Acts chapter 20 that just blows my mind. Because Paul makes this statement about kind of knowing what, what's going to happen to him and what's awaiting him. And, and he says, but you know what? I don't count my life dear to myself. That's a hard thing to say. I'll be honest with you. On most days, I count my life too dear to myself. 
I'm too focused on, you know, my needs and my wants and, 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 and how things are relating to me and that type of thing. But Paul has this, this heart. I don't count my life dear to myself. Why? Because I've died. I've died to me. And Paul recognized, hey, what I'm really about now is I'm, I'm about living for Jesus. And so the love of, of Christ had touched Paul's heart and also impacted the way that he viewed others. Notice this, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we have known him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Hey, if you are in Christ tonight, you are a new creation. Isn't that awesome? Old things have passed away. Your sins in, God, in, in God's eyes have been forgiven and they have been forgotten. Now, how does that happen? We can't do that. You know, I've used this illustration before, but I'll use it again. If, if Pete, you know, suddenly gets mad at me, punches me in the nose, I'll forgive him. After I fire him. <laughs> no, no, I would forgive him, but I tell you what, it would take me a long time to forget that. And anytime I was around Pete and he would like kind of do this, I'd be like jumping, like, you know, don't hit me again, Pete, you know, type of a thing. It's hard for us to, to forget, right? So how does God do that? Well, he's not one of us. God chooses to put our sins out of his memory, forgiven and forgotten. And, it, and it's, it's forgotten. So much so that, like, let's say you, like, totally messed up two days ago, and today the enemy's pounding you to where you're, you know, feeling condemnation again, and so you're, but two days ago, even, you know, after you, you blew it, you told the Lord, Lord, I'm so sorry, forgive me, and, you know, I just, I blew it, you know, and forget. And he did, man, he forgave you, and it's forgiven, and it's forgotten, so much so that two days later when you're like, the enemy's pounding, you're like, Lord, I just, just forgive me again. He's like going again? What are you talking about? It's gone. That's why the Bible says, our sins are put as far as east is from the west. Not the north and the south. Those points meet. East and the west, they don't meet. It's gone. It's put out of his remembrance. It's such a beautiful, awesome picture. God sees us in Christ as brand new. But here's what I love. Paul says from now on though, when I look at others, don't miss this, I don't want to regard anyone after the flesh. In other words, when I look at other people, I don't want to see them in their flaws. That, I don't, that's not what I want to focus on. I don't want to focus on what's wrong with them. Here's how Paul saw people. And I think this is how the Lord wants us to see people. This is something I think the Lord really wants to work in, into our life. All of us here tonight, everybody watching online, those who might be watching this maybe later on, I think there's something God is wanting to work into our life is what, what Paul's saying here. This is how Paul saw people as either being in Christ, believers, or outside of Christ, unbelievers. If they were believers, they're a new creation. 
They're a new creation in Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And Paul is saying here, I don't want to look at them and focus on their flesh. Paul wanted to see believers as a new creation. He didn't want to know them after the flesh. He wasn't focusing on their flesh or focusing on their flaws. My friend John Corson used to say this. He'd say, you know, it's a carnal man who when he looks at a woman, focuses on her body. That's what the carnal-minded guy does. The fleshly-minded guy. When he looks at a woman, he focuses on her body. But a spiritual man, when he looks at a woman, he focuses on her head. Well, guess what? The Bible says that you and I, were the body of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And there's a lot of people that are focusing when they look at the bride of Christ on the body. And guess what? The body, there's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of imperfections. A lot of this going on right now in, in, you know, on, on social media. Christians biting and devouring one another because they're focusing on, on the flaws, on the body. We need to get our eyes off of the body and onto the head. The head, the Bible says, is Jesus. We need to see him and begin to see each other in light of him. Now, I, I'll be honest. I don't always do this well. But you know, when I'm doing it well, this is what I'm doing. I'm looking, when I'm talking to somebody, when I'm with somebody, I'm looking for what I can see in them of Jesus. I'm looking. How does this person remind me of the Lord? What what, what attribute of, of the Lord do I see in them? That's such a great way to look at people. Not regarding them after the flesh, but I want to see them as a new creation. I want to see. I want to see Jesus in them. Man, can you imagine how that would change our relationships? Imagine, can you imagine how easy it would be for us to be as, you know, Paul exhorts us to be affirming to one another, how, how easy that would be if that's what we were focusing on? Man, I want to see, as I look at Al, what can I see in him of Jesus? And we're looking for that, and we're encouraging one another in that. I encourage you, sometime tonight or tomorrow, text one of your friends and just tell them, hey, you bless me. I see this about Jesus in you. I guarantee you, you'll, you'll bless their day. The enemy's going to be pounding on them. They're going to get your text. And it's like, really? Oh, man. I encourage you to do that. So Paul wanted to see believers as those who were in Christ and unbelievers as those who were in need of Christ. Look at verse 18. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 
Paul was motivated not just by heaven, not just by the love of Christ, but also by this ministry of reconciliation. That he realized, hey, God has given us a word, the gospel, that has the power to change a person's destiny. And it motivated him. And I want you to notice again the strong language in verse 20. He says, we're pleading with you. We're imploring you on behalf of Christ. Again, it's this idea of begging, persuading. It's passionate. We're pleading, imploring. Be reconciled to God. Now the word reconciled or reconciliation is used five times in this brief little paragraph. And reconciliation is a very important word. It simply means to bring two divided parties back together again. And in this context, it's man and God being brought back together again. Because the Bible teaches us that man was separated from God because of our sin. God gave a command. We broke it. Sin entered into the world. And after Adam and Eve, all of us had that sin nature and we just sinned to prove that we were sinners. And that sin separated us from God. And the Bible says that we were enemies of God, that we were rebellious by nature. That's how, how the Bible labeled us. That was our conduct. That was our, our, our attitude. That was the way we pursued life. And we had broken God's law and we had broken God's heart. But God, instead of casting us off, instead of going, oh, these crazy human beings on planet Earth, what am I going to do with them? You know, I'm just going to be done with them. I'm going to create a new planet and some other, you know, creatures and I'll have a relationship with them, you know. He doesn't do that. No, God sought to reconcile us to him. And this is what I want you to catch. The ministry of reconciliation begins with God. Look at verse 18. Now, all these things are from God who reconciles us. He's the initiator. Verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. The only way that we could ever be reconciled to God was that if the barrier, which is sin, was put out of the way. And God is reconciling sinners to himself and and he can only do that, as Paul puts it here, by not counting their trespasses against them. God's holy. And because he's holy in his very being, it's like, It's like light versus darkness. They're they're incompatible. He's holy, so he he can't even be compatible with that which is sinful. So there's a dilemma here. He wants to be reconciled, but his very nature, it's like it, it, it it goes against his very nature. But God is also loving. And in his love, he's pursuing sinners. But God is also just. And so he's a just judge. And so as a just judge, he can't just, you know, wink at sin. And go, hey, boys will be boys. You know, it's okay. You know, he he can't do that. His love and justice and his grace and truth and his mercy and righteousness go hand in hand. So what could God do to forgive sins but still remain righteous and a just judge? How can God 
be a ju- be just and a justifier of sinners, as Paul po- puts it, points this out very thing in Romans. How can he do that? Because the minute as a just judge, if he just winked at sin, passed over sin, and said, you know what, I'm going to let you off the hook this time, he would no longer be just. If you're in a courtroom, somebody's done great damage to you and your family, and you're in that courtroom, and that judge on that day just says, you know, I'm feeling really, really gracious today. I'm just going to let you off the hook. You would be screaming, that's not just. That's not right. That's not fair. God is just, he's fair, but he's loving and compassionate all at the same time. So how, how does he, how does he do this? Justice punishes sin. Justice deals with injustice. Well, verse 21 tells us how he did it. He made him speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What Paul is giving us here is the doctrine of imputation. It's a word that's borrowed from the banking industry, and it simply means to put into one's account. So when you deposit money in the bank, the computer or the clerk puts that amount into your account. It's given to your credit. Here's what what Paul's saying. When Jesus died on the cross, all of your sins were imputed to him. All of your sins, all of your wrongdoings of all the people in the world were put into his account. He was treated by God as though he had actually committed those sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross for us. So that all the wrath of God was then imputed to him. All the wrath of God was put on his son. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every single person who would ever believe. And all of those who would, who would not believe all of the sins of the world were cast on him. The father laid upon him the sin and the wrath that we deserved. And at that moment, on the cross, don't miss this, God the Father and God the Son, who had dwelt in perfect unity, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They had dwelt in perfect unity, perfect connection, perfect fellowship together. But in that moment, as Jesus becomes as black as sin, he and the Father are estranged. To the point where the Father doesn't, he can't look upon his Son. And that's why on the cross we read of Jesus He says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's significant about that is any other time that that Jesus is talking about God in the Gospels, he, he refers to him as Father, but not on the cross. He doesn't say, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? It's my God, my God. 
Why? Because a separation takes place. They're estranged. In that moment, they're upon the cross. Have you ever lost a child? Some of you are thinking, yes, on purpose. Um, <laughs> now, if you've ever lost you know, a child, you know what a sinking feeling that is, right? Like, oh man, where, where are they? I mean, you just, you, you panic, you're, you're heartbroken. You start, you know, your mind starts playing tricks with you in a sense, like, oh, what happened to them? You know, type of thing. Well, magnify that by a million fold and you get a little bit of a glimpse of the father's perspective. At that moment, his heart was broken and the heart of Jesus is broken. And Paul says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. In other words, they were in it together they knew full well this is what it was going to take to take these rebellious people and make a way for their sins to be forgiven so that they could be reconciled to God now here's the here's the really really cool thing if you understand that the first half of that that Jesus was became sin for us that our sins were imputed to him. There's also another side to it that Paul says. Notice he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took all of your sin and gave you all of his righteousness. That was the trait. All of your sin was put into his account and all of his righteousness was put into your account. So that now God sees you brand new in Christ, a new creation. He sees you righteous. That's your position in Christ. God treats you tonight as he looks upon you as holy and righteous, not because of you know, who you are, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did and because you have been placed in him. He invites us to come into his presence and be a part of our, his family, to hold our head high, no shame, no tension, just that sense of, of hey, you belong because the righteousness of my son has been put into your accounts. Now, here's the thing. Who's this glorious ministry of reconciliation available to? Notice how Paul puts it in verse 19. He says, God was in Christ reconciling who? Who? The world to himself. This work was done for the world. Remember when John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus comes down into the water. What did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of who? The world's. In 1 John chapter 2, we're told this that about Jesus. He is the propitiation. That means the satisfaction for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. Paul put, said this in 1 Timothy 2.3, God is our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's the point. Reconciliation is available to all, but it's only experienced by those who believe. The classic verse, probably one of the first verses all of us learn for John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, what, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You have to believe in Jesus. 
And that word believe, it doesn't mean just to intellectually believe. It means to cling to, to trust in, to rely upon. In other words, I'm placing all the weight of my life on what he did on the cross for me. And that's my confidence. That's what my life is built upon. Now, sometimes people ask me this question, how can a loving God send people to hell? And I always answer, he doesn't. People choose to go there. He's done everything. This is what Paul's saying. He's done everything to make reconciliation happen. But here's the point. Some people refuse to be reconciled. You know know that in your own lives. There's probably broken relationships in this room where everything that could possibly be done to reconcile that relationship has been done. But there's somebody on the other side saying, I'm not going to do that. Not going to reconcile. Nope. And that's what people do to God. And they'll spend eternity in hell by their own choice. It'll be their own fault. But here's what I want you to catch as we kind of wrap this up tonight. God invites us. This is what Paul's saying. God invites us to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us this word of reconciliation. And in verse 20, he calls us ambassadors for Christ. And this is a very, very noble word. You see, an ambassador represents his government in all of its character. He represents his king, his government, his leader in all of its character, in dignity, in all of its philosophy. An ambassador speaks solely for his ruler. He's the ruler's mouthpiece in that country. He never offers promises or demands his own things, but rather those of the kingdom. An ambassador does not speak to please the audience. Note that. He speaks to please the king that he's representing. You know, sometimes I might say something up here that offends you. Don't get mad at me. I'm just representing my king. (laughs) I'm just saying what he says. Take it up with him. That's the point. An ambassador is a messenger. An ambassador is a representative. And in Paul's day, it was a really highly regarded office. And generally speaking, when the Roman government would conquer a particular country, sometimes they would place as many as 10 ambassadors in that country. Think about this. God has placed millions of his ambassadors all over the world. But you know what? The problem is a lot of us aren't doing a very good job of representing him. That's the problem. Imagine what would happen if we did An ambassador is someone who's living in a foreign land. He's spending his time in a land that that is foreign to him, that that he's estranged to him, that he's not going to get too comfortable in. That's where God has us. We're in a foreign world, but we're here to represent our king, King Jesus. And guys, this is a very graphic picture of what really is our calling in the world. Our calling as his ambassadors is to plead with men and to implore men be reconciled to God. Now I want to end on this thought. Have you ever thought about this? Everything else that we do here, everything else that we experience 
here as followers of Jesus Christ and being a part of the family of God, everything that we experience here is going to be so much better in heaven. There's going to be better worship. Sorry, Pete. (laughs) There's going to be better worship. Our worship is awesome, but it's going to be like a million times better in heaven. There's going to be, we're going to have purer lives in heaven. There's going to be sweeter fellowship in heaven. There's going to be, I mean, everything in heaven is going to be, everything that we experience here that we just think, oh, this is so great. I love this. And oh, I love being a part of the family of God. Everything that we experience here is just a small taste of what heaven's going to be like. And it's going to be a million times better. But you know, the one thing that we get to do here that we won't be doing in heaven That's pleading with men to be reconciled to God. Because they're all going to be reconciled to God in heaven. So that's part of the reason why we're here. It's God saying, look, I put you here. You're my ambassadors because you're part of my team to reach people that I have a heart for, that I don't want to see go to hell, that I sent my son for. And I, I want you to be those who are praying for them, have a burden for them, and seeking to build relationships with them so that you can plead with them out of a heart of love and compassion that says, hey, I love you, brother. I love you, friend. And I don't want to see you lost. So I'm pleading with you, consider Christ and be reconciled to God. And guys, we need to see this as a privilege, a blessing, and an honor that God says, you're my ambassadors. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are a new creation. Brand new. Oh, Lord. Ah, we just so thankful for that. And Lord, I pray that we, Lord, would grab a hold of this incredible, awesome privilege that you've given us to be your ambassadors. Lord, give us a a heart for people that don't know you. A heart that breaks for what breaks yours. Lord, I pray that we would see those in the body of Christ, that we would see them in Jesus. And everyone else, we would see them as people who are outside of Jesus that you love so dearly. Lord, I pray that we would focus on in in our lives with each other the, the things in one another that we see in Jesus to affirm that, to compliment that, to encourage that, to stir up one another in our love for you. And Lord, I pray that we would see the people around us who are lost, who are, many of them, how we used to be. Being foolish and ignorant and living for themselves and empty and destructive. That we wouldn't be annoyed by them, but Lord, we would have your heart, that we would see them as people that you love, that you came to rescue. That we would plead with them. 
to be reconciled to you. We love you, Lord. We give you just the rest of this time this evening in Jesus' name.